0: Good morning. Good morning. You may be seated. Hey, way to go. Making it through that weather. I uh, drove up from Prescott and uh, yeah, it wasn't fun. (laughs) Glad I made it. All right. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles if you would please and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If uh, you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. Grab one of those, page 969. If you're using an electronic version of the Bible, we're using the NIV, the New International Version. And if you're brand new with us, uh, hopefully you got a green brochure. If you're brand new with us, you're amazing make it out today. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm wondering if I'm talking to the air right now. I don't know. Uh, But if you are... uh, Inside of the worship of this new here, there's a a sermon application guide, and so you can uh, take notes on this, there's questions for reflection, we're about bringing the story of God to life. We're in a series working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7, it's about a 12-week series, this is week 6 of the series, so we'll be halfway uh, today, and last week I started a two part sermon on uh, matthew five nineteen through forty eight and so i 'll spend a little bit of time summarizing, although I hope if you missed last week that you 'll go back and watch it some real um, so really important stuff that I can 't get into the summary and uh, so the summary will also ultimately fall a little bit short uh, hopefully you'll get you 'll b- get back and watch that I thought Oh, everybody's just going to go right through the snow no matter what, just to get part two of that sermon. <laughs> I was joking with the team back there. Uh, let's not put this on video. No, let's not put this online. Okay. So it's really a tough passage, passage because Jesus is explaining to his followers how they should live, and what he says is impossible. What he says to do is just absolutely impossible. Don't lust, he says. Uh, it's adultery when you do. If you don't struggle with lust, the next one will get you. Don't be angry. (laughs) Because when you get angry, it's murder in God's estimation. And there's all these other similar commands. And then you get to the very end, and if you, like, the six commands or so that are in there, if you have no trouble with those, which there's nobody here who has no trouble (laughs) with at least two or three or four of those, he finishes by saying in verse 48, and you can look at your Bibles, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the last one. Be perfect, as your, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that's a variation on one of the laws in Leviticus, uh, back in the Old Testament, where it says, I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves and be holy <clears throat> because I am holy. It's basically saying the same thing. It's using a different word. So we looked at this last week from the standpoint of a question, which is, how can I obey Jesus when Jesus commands the impossible? How do I do that? So we're going to pray, we'll review, and then we'll, we'll jump into new content for this week. So this prayer is based on Jeremiah 33. It's part of our second movement where we're listening to God speak, and in order to hear God speak, we need to look at, uh, we need the Holy Spirit to illuminate it. So that's what we ask for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have formed the earth and everything in it. You are Lord over all things, and yet you are mindful of us. You call us to yourself, and you want for us to know you. All wisdom and truth is found in you. Through your Holy Spirit, speak to us through your word. Show us what we do not know reveal the things that we need to see may all that we do bring glory to you we pray this in jesus name amen so last week i talked about what my oldest son does with his two-year-old son where he holds up a little toy truck which he always has one in his hands and he says uh if he says on your 16th birthday I will give you a real truck on your birthday. I'll buy you a brand new truck on one condition. And the one condition is that you don't scream between now and then. To which he responds by screaming immediately because he has no idea what his dad is talking about. He just hears the word scream. Okay. Ah! Safe promise. But if he were to make the same promise at age 15, and he were to say one year turns 15, says one year from now when you turn 16... I will buy you a brand new truck if you only don't do this bad habit that you have. It might be yelling at your sister, talking back to your mother, it might be picking on your younger brother, whatever it is that he kind of does automatically. It's just become a habit in his life. Wouldn't matter how much he loves trucks, how much he would love to get a brand new truck at age 16, he wouldn't make it. Because our bad habits just become second nature to us. They become things. They become reactions to certain stimuli. And so we just naturally respond in certain ways. And he would just have to pick one of those things that's a natural reaction for him. So when Jesus says in Matthew 5 earlier, we looked at it last week, don't even lust. It's not just not committing adultery. Don't even lust. He's commanding the impossible. Because lust for many of us, most of us, is second nature reaction. When Jesus says, don't even be angry, he's commanding the impossible because anger is second nature to us. And when he says, love your enemies, who whose response, whose natural response when someone does something evil or nasty, or persecuting, or something calls you a name or hurts you, or hits you? whose natural reaction is, I love you. And yet Jesus actually expects us to live that way. He's calling us to that. And if that's the case, how can we obey Jesus? And he does want us to obey him when when he commands the impossible. So last week we looked at the first point and part of the first point, I should say, which is, it starts with loving God's commands. You're never going to, you're never going to follow Jesus and keep his commands, which he calls us to, if, uh, and do so at a heart level because all these commands go to the heart level. They're not just about, about outwardly conforming in some way to some rules. They are heart level, absolutely, how am I going to respond in this moment? What do I feel in this moment? We can't do that unless we love the commands, unless we look at the command and say, this is a good and beautiful way of living. This is what I want. But many of God's commands are hard to love. Many of them are. and Sometimes they feel arbitrary. Sometimes, as in reading Matthew 5, we feel condemned by them. Sometimes some of his commands, as one we looked at last week, we'll look at again. This week seems to be at least halfway unjust. So I'm convinced, though, that we can begin to love God's commands if we know how God's laws and God's commands actually work. We need to understand the nature of God's commands. So what do we need to know about them? Last week we talked about one thing, and I've got several more. So we need to understand that God's individual commands are often accommodations of his ideals to our brokenness, our sin. Jesus makes that point in Matthew 19. We looked at that. Last week, there's 611 commands within the first five books of the Bible, the books of the law, the books of the Torah, book of instruction, and one of the commands has to do with giving a certificate of divorce, and it says, if you're going to divorce, you need to give a certificate of divorce, and because archaeologists have uncovered these certificates of divorce, there is a... Um, what's been discovered is a certificate of divorce always gives the other person the right to remarry. So it's, it's not God's ideal, Jesus says, but to accommodate, Jesus says, our hard-heartedness, God commanded the giving of a certificate of divorce. It actually was a law that protected the vulnerable. And so that's where we left off last week. So what else do we need to know? This is where we pick up new content. So God's commands, number two, are based on God's ideals. As you read through God's commands, let's say you're reading through the Ten Commandments, how often do you think you're reading actually God's ideals? A lot of time you're not. And in Matthew 19, Jesus didn't even go back to another commandment. It's not like... When they asked him about divorce, remarriage, and all that, he didn't go back to another commandment. Instead, he went back to the way things are supposed to be, the ideal. He took them back to Genesis 1 and 2. He took them back to paradise. He took them back to the time before sin entered the world, before brokenness entered the world, before the separation that happened between humanity and God's people, God's creation. In our Story of God course, uh, we make a point that Uh, It's really important to realize that from the time God calls Abraham to be the beginning of a brand new nation, the people of Israel, from the time God calls Abraham until about 400 years later, God's relationship with his people, until they're numbering in the hundreds of thousands, God's relationship with his people, there is no set of laws. He gives them no set of laws whatsoever. It's all relational. Abraham, we're told in Genesis, is made righteous, is counted righteous because he trusted God. Just through trusting God. Eventually, God gives the law to the people of Israel as they're entering the land, as they're going to be inside the, 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 what will become the land of Israel. And the rules that he makes are to guide them as a nation... But the relational basis for that never goes away. It's not like I'm going to take away trusting me and the relationship and I'm going to give you a law. We talk about this in our story of God course and if you're new with us, I hope you take it sometime. Six week overview of the whole Bible, framework for the Bible, the one story that it tells and a framework for spiritual growth in there as well. So what are the ideals then? Well, the ideals are in Genesis 1 and 2. And really, almost everything in the Bible goes back to Genesis 1 and 2 in ways that that I'm just learning now and discovering uh, uh, about as as people are writing about this and pointing that out. Where else can we find the ideals? We find the ideals in Matthew chapter 5. If you're going to love God's commands... You, you need to see that they are many times most definitely not God's ideal. They are an accommodation to our brokenness. If we're going to love God's commands, we have to look beyond the commands to the ideals that are behind the commands, which you can find in Genesis 1 and 2, you can find in Matthew chapter 5. You can actually find it again at the end of the Bible. So you can look to creation, you can look to the new creation. The third thing to love God's commands is to know that God's ideals reflect his good and beautiful character. So again, in the story of God, course, we simplify this a little bit by saying God's commands go back to principles that he puts into the world, the way the world works, which goes back to his character. And really, to be more precise, it's the ideals behind the command. So you can almost separate it, God's, God's commands go back to principles, go back to his ideals, which go back to his, his character. And the reality is that his ideals directly reflect his character, while the commands indirectly reflect his character. They still reflect his character, but indirectly. And the more we know about God and the more we know about his character, the more we understand and appreciate his ideals. We have to know him to appreciate his ideals. Number four, God's command, commands because he wants what's best for us. The good and beautiful God shows us how to have a good and beautiful life. If you want to love God's commands, you have to know that. You have to know that God is for you. You have to know that he can be trusted. You have to know that he loves you, and that's why he gives you commandments. That's why he gives us commandments. God's commands are focused on our biggest struggles. And so they're the kinds of things that can ruin our lives and our relationships. So he, like a good parent, gives us boundaries and tells us how to live. So a good parent lays down a rule like when you're really little, do not go into the road without holding on to mommy or daddy's hand. Good rule, right? Now the kid may not like it. When you're two, three years old, four years old, you want to run But mom and dad are doing that out of love. Get a little older and it becomes more like, no, you got to get your homework done. You can't play video games. Why? Because video games are actually literally created to addict. So you create boundaries. A loving parent creates boundaries because you don't want your kid to be addicted if they're given to addictions. Literally created for that. So a good parent creates boundaries. Last thing, a day is coming when there will be no more need to accommodate our brokenness. If you want to love God's commands, you need to know a day is coming when there will be no, the ideals will be in place. God's kingdom rule is already here, breaks in with Jesus, but it's not yet fully here. It's one of the most fundamental things we can know about our lives, we can know about the Bible, is that we're living in the already, not yet. The already of God's kingdom is broken in, the not yet, it's not come fully. So rather than thinking about what Jesus says, about anger, <clears throat> about lust, about divorce, about honesty, about retaliation, about loving enemies, instead of thinking it as something that weighs you down, condemns you, it's like, that's impossible. I, you know, as most people, as we talked about in several weeks now, most people Just reading the Sermon on the Mount with no faith filter to read it, hate it. Because it just seems so ridiculously impossible. Even cruel. But instead of looking at it that way, what if we saw the beauty of a world where no one demeaned another person by calling them names? Because we actually believed deep in the core of our being we actually believe that they are made in the image of God even if they're messing up that's a beautiful world imagine a world where every one of our sexual desires were never focused on something that's out of bounds or were to be like so strong that it's like overwhelming to our minds and our lives always focused Sexual desires. Imagine a world where always our sexual desires are focused on what is appropriate and the desire is not overwhelming. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about there's that day. He's, he's giving kingdom principles of how it looks when God is ruling completely. Imagine a world where complete honesty. People speak in complete honesty, and complete honesty is received well, even if it hurts a little bit. Where even the question, do I look fat in these pants, can be answered honestly. And reality is, in a perfect world, no one's cruel enough to ask that question. Imagine a world where a married couple actually treats each other the way that they would love to be treated. Where I treat Lois the way that she would love to be treated. I would love to be treated. Always. And she treated me in the way that she would like to be treated. Always. Because we both actually believe in the core of our being that when we got married we became one flesh. And why would we hurt our own flesh? That's That's the dream that's out there. That's what Jesus is pointing to in these commands. If we're going to love these commands, we have to to know that. That that a day is coming when he doesn't have to accommodate our brokenness. He's giving us a picture of this. If we see God's ideals and imagine the beauty of what will be, we can start not only loving the commands, we can start living by those ideals here and now. We can live that prayer that, that we pray, which is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So back to Deuteronomy chapter 21. If you weren't here last week and haven't watched the sermon, let me, let me give you. this is one of the Old Testament laws that are hard to love, all right? And there's worse ones than this. But here's one of the Old Testament laws that's hard to love. Uh, God is giving direction to the people of Israel. They're about to go into the promised land, and He says, "When you go to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take captives." If you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Now, right there, that's just horrible. <laughs> Bring her into your home and have her shave her head and trim her nails and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. Right up I mean still terrible. <laughs> I can I love that commandment. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. Little flicker of light there. Give her time to mourn. And if you're not pleased with her, so this is assuming in that month while you're waiting, you haven't gone into her, you haven't made her your wife. If you're not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. This captive woman. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. That that breaks all the rules of that day. Okay, so it starts out like this horrible thing, and then these flickers of light. Is this law God's ideal? No. No. On so many grounds. They're at war. That's not God's ideal. We hear God's ideal In Matthew chapter 5, we can go back to Genesis 1 and 2. There's no war. There's not going to be any war in in the last two chapters of Revelation. That's not God's ideal. They're at war because of human brokenness. The war itself is an act of judgment on the people of that land and is inevitable because they're going into the land that God has given them and the people there aren't going to go, Oh, come on in. It's not the ideal. No other law, though, from that period treated, captured, people in that way not one and we have the laws from that period they've been found by archaeologists it's an obvious accommodation of God's ideal to our brokenness but in there are the seeds for human rights right planted in there are the seeds for human rights it actually acknowledges that you have dishonored this woman this woman who would stick a knife into your heart if she had had the opportunity in battle This woman who, because of the circumstances and standards of her day, may have sacrificed, slaughtered her firstborn child to one of her gods. Now if you think, why didn't God just make all the changes right away? Why not just do away with war and all of that? Well, um, instead of this incremental unfolding of human rights, he does the same thing on slavery. We talked about this about a year ago or so. If you ask that, if you question God in that, think about a few things. Almost everyone universally looks at God's ideals, like turn the other cheek, give to anyone and everyone who asks for a loan. Walk the if if a soldier is, is the is the premise here. If a soldier says, carry my pack for a mile, because they were allowed to do that, you say, Can I carry it for you for an extra mile? even though you are an occupying force and I hate you. <laughs> oh, I'm not allowed to hate you. I love you, <laughs> even though you're an occupying force. Everybody looks at it and say it's crazy, it's impossible, it's stupid, it doesn't work. And that's what you might be asking for. You might be saying, God, make the change. Why didn't God make the change? right? You're asking for something that universally the reaction is that doesn't work and it won't work. And it won't work. Not in the broken world that we're in. It won't work. If he just said, no war. No taking of captives because there is no war. That's why Jesus and the rest of the New Testament, actually, a lot of the rest of his commands do accommodate our brokenness. Not in chapter 5, but as you continue reading, he does. And the New Testament accommodates our brokenness. It's like we can't handle God's pure ideals. And if you accuse God of injustice, you say, well, this just seems like an unjust God. Think again, because the reality is the only reason you would accuse God of injustice is because God's ideals are in you. You think evolutionary biology, watching the animal kingdom, anything? do you think there's anything in this world that would suggest that you should treat as a fellow human being a captive in war? There's nothing except God's ideals written in your heart that would cause you to accuse God of being unjust. It isn't the logical conclusion of any system of thinking, except maybe a system made up by people who would be the killed ones, and out of self-preservation, they say, this is what we should think. (laughs) If we're going to keep God's impossible commands at the heart level, um, and we have to because they all point to the heart level, then we have to fall in love with God's commands and love the God who commands out of love. We have to. Secondly, we have to hold tight to God's grace. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you four quick statements on this. This could be a series. Each one of these points could be a series in and of themselves. If you've been around Five Oaks for a while, you you know where these go. You've, You've heard sermons and series on this. If you're new to Christianity, if you're investigating Christianity, stick around. We'll go deeply into this. But let me just give you the cliff notes. Grace. Grace, which is unmerited favor. So grace means God gives us what we don't deserve. God receives us, accepts us, even though we don't deserve it, and we don't earn it. It's not grace if it's earned. So grace is not just the ABCs of the faith. Grace is the A to Z. That's for those of you who have kind of grown up in the church, and we've oftentimes thought of grace as what gets us in the door with God, but after that, it's all effort. It's like, you better you better live the right way. no. <laughs> The Bible speaks of grace and salvation as past, present, and future. Because we need grace to come to know Jesus. We need grace to stay saved. And we're going to need grace at the very end in the judgment. It's the A to Z. It's only, number two, it's only by God's grace and through faith that we are counted righteous before God. So Jesus is making some outlandish requests of them or commands to them, but he knows why he came. He knows he came to die. He came to die to make righteousness available to all of us through faith, through his death and resurrection. He knows why he came. Number three, grace doesn't nullify the call to obedience. In other words, He actually wants us to live in that grace in such a way that we grow into more and more obedience. He actually wants us, our first reaction, not to be anger when someone hurts us. And then finally, it's only by living in God's grace, knowing that we are loved and accepted by God through Christ, that obedience will take hold in our hearts. That's the only way it can happen. So if we're going to keep god 's impossible commands at a heart level, we have to fall in love with, with God 's commands and love the God who commands out of love. Secondly, we need to hold tight to God's grace. Finally, we need to practice the rhythms of joyful obedience. and the word joyful in there is really important. The scripture is very clear. God is not looking for like reluctant obedience. He wants joyful obedience. So we oftentimes talk about the rhythms of grace here, those practices that like prayer and gathering together for worship and reading our Bibles and reflecting on scripture, learning from the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the spiritual disciplines and practices like serving using our spiritual gifts, serving our world, impacting our world, sharing our faith. Those are, all, those are all spiritual rhythms of grace that draw us nearer to Christ and grow our love for him. They grow our love for him. They're all relational, so they grow our love for him. And then through those, the Holy Spirit transforms us into something that, that no matter how hard we try, we cannot do. But as he trains us and transforms us, we can now do what we couldn't do before. But that's not what I'm talking about here because I want to talk about something a little bit different. It's a simple rhythm that British pastor John T. Alcock recommends in a little book called Impossible Commands. He calls them four steps to joyful obedience, and then he says steps isn't really a good word because it sounds automatic. It's like, follow these four steps, you're going to be joyfully obedient. It's not like that. So I prefer the word rhythms. But here, here's the rhythm that he talks about. It starts out with being honest. Be honest and admit that you can't be joyfully obedient. Which is the phrase "I can't"? He, he's, he just uses the word "I can't." If uh, you can't obey, you can't obey God at the level that God is asking for obedience. You can't do that on your own. You can't. There's no way to do it because what He's asking you to do goes completely against your natural, fleshly inclinations. You can't do it any more than Lazarus, dead Lazarus, could obey on his own the command of Jesus as he's lying dead in his tomb. And Jesus commands him and says, Lazarus, get up. Reality is you can't, I can't keep God's commands at that hard level any more than he could get up without God raising him up. If you, on the other hand, think, you know what? Matthew 5, 48, be perfect. I'm trying to be perfect, and uh, I'm just hoping at the end that God will look at me and say, you're perfect enough. Close. If you want to do that, you can clothe yourself in your goodness when you go before God. That's what you can put on. But I choose, and every genuine Christian chooses, to clothe themselves with Christ's righteousness. Scripture uses that terminology. It's like I go before God clothed in Christ's righteousness. Scripture says that we are counted as righteous when we put our faith in Jesus and what he did. And so it's like his perfect obedience, his account before God gets transferred to me, gets transferred to you. And your sorry record gets transferred to him. On the cross, I prefer to clothe myself with Christ. You can do the same. Secondly, so it, I can't. Confess your sin. I'm sorry. Confess your sin. Now, saying that you can't, you can't on your own not lust, you can't uh, not be angry on your own doesn't mean that you're without blame, that I'm without blame. Same with every other sin. We are to blame for that sorry state of affairs it's become a natural thing for us because we have a natural track record of rebelling against god in fact every sin in scripture is a full scale rebellion against the god that this full scale rebellion unleashes incalculable evil as it ripples through people and beyond people from this person to this person to this my sin hits this person hits another person hits another person hits another person The reality is that only people who are living in God's grace can actually own the extent of their sin because otherwise we would be overwhelmed by it. If we could just see it, if we understood it, we would be overwhelmed by it. And that's why our natural inclination is to take our sin and minimize it, blame somebody else for it, or compare ourselves to someone who is, in our minds, worse than we are. That's what we do. Unless we're living in grace, we can own our sin. The third rhythm is to just constantly be asking for help. Please help. And this starts with God, but it's not just asking help from God. The scripture is very clear. It's asking for help from God's people. That is, how, that is one, the, probably the primary way that God is going to work and his Holy Spirit is going to work. It's going to be through other people. And then finally, take a first, often small, step of obedience. The phrase Alcock uses is, let's go. Now, the Apostle Paul is the one who most clearly states the fact that we live in God's grace, that we receive God's grace, that we can't earn it, that Being made right with God is something that we cannot earn, that works of the law will never save us. He is the one that makes it clearer than anybody else in the Bible. And yet, when the Apostle Paul talks about the Christian life, he talks about it as being a fight, a struggle inside of ourselves, a race. He talks about the fact that we cannot live the the Christian life unless we actually exert self-control. He just talks about all these things constantly that are feats of great effort. He says you cannot, through effort, make yourself right with God, keep yourself right with God, find yourself right with God at the end. You cannot, and yet it's this fight and this incredible gargantuan effort. Dallas Willard used to say something like this. He used to say grace isn't against effort, it's against a certain kind of effort. Grace is against a kind of effort that says, I, oh, my efforts are making God happy. <laughs> That's the kind of effort it's against. But the kind of effort um, that God calls us for is one that is within grace. Recognizing God's need, our, our need for grace. But living for Jesus takes effort. Shanti Alcock is British, and he's a pastor, so he gives a very British analogy that I think we can understand. But he, he talks about teaching his kids how to play cricket. And uh, he says when they were small, they couldn't even swing the bat. The bat was just too big, too heavy when they were really little. So he'd come along and stand next to them. And as the ball was being, being pitched in that weird way that they pitch in, uh, in cricket, as it's, as it's being pitched, he would hold around them and he would hit the ball. Okay, He says... He didn't yell at them because they couldn't pick up the bat. And all the time while he's holding, he's encouraging them, like, let's do it. We can do this. We can do this. And then when they hit it, he's like, look what you did. Isn't that incredible? You know, so he'd cheer them on, even though it was by his strength that they did it. They just got their arms around the bat. It's his strength that's doing it. That's what our Heavenly Father does with us. You want to do the impossible commands? That's what you need. You need that, that please help and God coming along. Heavenly Father. If you compare what Jesus says to Leviticus, an interesting thing. It's not that it wasn't there in Le- Leviticus, but if we could have the next slide. It, uh, Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Leviticus, I am the Lord your God, which is a beautiful statement. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. But listen, Jesus says, heavenly Father because he he really focused on the fatherhood of God, good father, what a father is supposed to be. And so John T. Alcock, uh, he he says this. He says, your heavenly father stands behind you, think of the cricket, and says, fight as hard as you can. And then he swings his mighty arm, and together we smack sin far into the distance. But you will uh, often fail. You will even fail to fight. Sometimes you will fail to trust your father. But other times, you will swing and win. There's a confidence, even a defiance in this sort of obedience. Sin will not rule over you. Sin will not ultimately defeat you. As you work, God works. As you fight, he fights. As you win, he wins. Here is gospel-driven, joyful obedience. How many times have you found yourself defeated? Where something just... You, you keep failing in the same ways, and you're just defeated, and you stop trying. And it's, it's, it's because... <laughs> When you failed, you didn't just get back up and swing again. You condemned yourself. You projected your own self-condemnation unto God instead of a God that just says, hey, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Let's swing again. You're not perfect. You're not going to be perfect in this life. Just let it go. (laughs) Say, I can't. I can't. Please help. And God is willing to come. And that means get pick up the bat again. Let's, let's do it again. And guess what? There's going to be days when you don't even want to do what's right. And you have to admit that. Father, I don't even want to do what's right. I don't even want to ask for help right now because I want to do this other thing that I know you don't want me to do. There'll be those days, but there are going to be other days where you're going to pick up the bat and you're going to swing, you're going to hit it, you're going to win. And small step by small step, God is going to be transforming your heart, your life, your hands, your feet, your brain, everything. That's what he's calling us to. That's what he's calling to us to in Matthew chapter 5. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God full of grace and mercy and love and empowerment that you live with us and in us if we invite you to be our Lord and Savior. Your Holy Spirit guides us, strengthens us, empowers us. We thank you that you are that, that God. Father, I pray for anyone here today who has, is just feeling defeated by sins, rebellion in their own heart. I pray that they would turn to you and admit that. and Just start a new day right now. take a small step of obedience right now. We thank you, Father. We thank you for your abundant, beautiful grace. We thank you that you are a good and beautiful God. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.